reds, blacks and blues. In the whole batch of orange freshers, she was the only one that stood out. Red, aggressive and angry. There was a bit of orange in her too, excitement, but mostly just the blazing red. The ribbons and swathes of colour people exude are very visible to me. Frankly, I don't understand how most people can't see them. They are so self-evident to me. The blues are the calmer ones. Whites are so calm they might as well be dead. The reds, as I said, are aggressive and seething internally. And the orange, excitable, always on the cusp of discovery. Blacks and purples are violent and unpredictable. I avoid them. Best are the yellows, I suppose. Lucky beasts. Happy, contented, fulfilled. Most people have just a tinge or a small patch, rare to see a full flaming yellow canary. This girl was uncompromisingly red. Bold and unapologetic. Just a tinge of orange flaring on her outer margins, occasioned by being a fresher in a new environment maybe. But predominantly scarlet. I disliked her on first sight. Nothing personal. I just don't like reds. They are complex. Too much stuff going on inside their heads. And they mess me up too. But there was something strange about this one. She wound me up intensely, of course. But she drew me in as much as she repelled me. I couldn't get a handle on it. I can't see my own colour. So I don't know if I'm a grey. But I know I can be one. Nondescript, invisible, adjusting in the background. She'd never see me if I didn't want her to. I followed her around for weeks. I knew where she lived. I knew who her friends were, where she went, what she did, her favourite hangouts. I knew what her parents didn't know, what her pals didn't know. I suspect I knew things she herself didn't know. I read all her patterns, overt and covert. Nothing was hidden from me. And she didn't even know I existed. After the movie, her friends left, but she stayed on. She wandered through the mall, looking at things, not going into any of the shops or talking to anyone, not buying anything or eating anything. She'd done that before, a few times. There was never any plan in her rambling. This was the calmest she ever got. The red faded into a gentler pink and patches of blue blossomed all over her. Retail therapy, what do you know? But as she stepped out onto the road, adjusting the straps of her backpack on her shoulders, you could see the blue receding and the red ramping up. Usually she didn't leave so late when she was alone. It was already getting dark and she had to walk home. I followed in the shadows. She kept up a steady pace along the main roads, well lit by the street lights and the headlights of passing vehicles. But as she turned into the darker and quieter side streets, her tempo changed. She was hurrying now. There was no trace of the blue anymore. 
Her red was so hot it radiated around her like a halo. No sign of fear that I could see, but fully alert. I was concentrating so fiercely on her, I didn't see them at all till they started catcalling. Darling, one of them called. My sweetie, come to me, my sweetie. Another whistled. Oh, yeah, sexy. They were blacks and purples, lost to peace and sanity. The red from her shone over them and lit up their blackness as she did her best to ignore them and stride on confidently. But the side streets were deserted and she had to go through them to get home. She didn't break stride, but she was flaming scarlet, madder than I'd ever seen her. One of the purples got too close for comfort and she lashed out in an angry crimson tide. Maybe she had a weapon in her hand, though I didn't see it. I saw the swift wave of bilious green fear wash over him and then the return of the purple in a savage torrent. They lunged at her, all five of them, and she fought back like a virago. That's all I know. This man was a pink, brimming with goodwill, or I'd never have let him touch me. He instructed me to move my hands and legs, speaking to me in a calm, even voice. He patched up a few cuts here and there. He shone a torch in my eyes and asked me what day it was, and I said it was Wednesday. I told him the date, where I studied, and my home address. He put his firm hand on my shoulder, keeping me sitting where I was, and I could feel his steadiness leaching into me. My breath slowed, and my heart beat, and the red-hot tide of anger I'd been engulfed in slowly subsided. I could hear her talking, stumbling in her rush to get the words out. Another pink was attending to her. There were four or five of them, she said. They were whistling and calling to me. I wasn't really scared, just tense and fully focused on avoiding trouble. My house is just around the corner, so I was hurrying, hoping I'd escape. But one of them put his hand on my hair and I completely lost my temper. I shouldn't have, I know. They told us that staying calm was very important, but I lost it. I had my keys sticking out from between the fingers of my fist as we were taught. And I'm always ready with them this way when I walk down this dark stretch. I lashed out at him and I think I drew blood. That accounted for the bilious green fear that I'd seen flush through him. She was right. She hadn't been scared. She'd been mad angry. I'd seen that furious tide of red as I closed in on her. I listened attentively as she filled in the paramedics. I'm glad I got him, even though I think that maddened them all that I dared to fight back and they fell upon me like a pack of wolves. I thought I was finished anyway, so I might as well go out all guns blazing and my keys drew a lot of blood I know as I flailed my fist about belaying all within reach and I put my elbows and kicks to solid use to but it would still have gone badly for me if this person hadn't come out of nowhere to help me. He was manic. He tore them off me as if he had ten arms and threw them aside, snarling, Black devils! Black devils! 
over and over again. They scrambled off, the cowards, bleeding and shouting as they ran. By then, someone from one of the houses must have called police and ambulance, I think. I know I didn't, and I don't think he did. I must thank him. Please, let me thank him. She lumbered towards me, still swaddled in a military blanket, hair all dishevelled. Amazingly, there was no trace of fear about her even now. Just the steady red and a few flares of orange. And as she came the few steps towards me, it softened almost to a pink. Her eyes widened in surprise as she saw me. And the first thing she blurted out was, I thought you'd be bigger and older. You seem to tower over us all, plucking them off and tossing them aside like unwanted garbage. I laughed outright. She looked so stunned. They sat us down next to each other in the open doorway of the ambulance, each swaddled in our own blanket. We had to wait some more time, they said. Something to do with shock. They contacted both sets of parents, though I tried to avoid mine being bothered. We sat quietly, side by side, as they went about their process. I could feel the blue permeating slowly through her. I didn't do a thing. I didn't touch her. I'd seen what she did to people who touched her out of turn. I didn't speak to her. I didn't even look at her. I just sat there, quietly, beside her. I don't think I dislike her that much anymore. The Mystery of Chicky I was seven when I received Chicky as a birthday gift. Now don't you start about irresponsibility and people shouldn't give living creatures as gifts to anybody, especially to kids. I know all about that. I know folks aren't always prepared to look after them and they often get wickedly abandoned. But that wasn't the case here. First, we lived in the countryside, surrounded by every domestic animal you can think of. Dogs, of course. Cats, ducks, cows, horses, chickens and pigs. So animals were part of my life. I knew how to look after them, nurse them when they were sick and groom them every day. Second, I'd been begging for a horse of my own, or a dog, or even a pig, but mine, not a family pet, and not a working or breeding animal. Such a frivolous creature as a pet is not the way on a farm. Joker followed Dad everywhere, but he was a working dog. And Tammy always hung around in whatever room Mum was in, but she was a champion mouser, which is why she was bedded down in the kitchen at night. My sister loves the ducks, but she marshaled them every day in and out of our vegetable patch 
where they ate all the invading bugs and insects. I was responsible for the hen coop and did my duties unfailingly. But those chickens didn't fill my soul. To have such a powder puff as a purely pet creature was considered a ridiculous indulgence. But what can I say? I craved indulgence. I was six years old. Anyhow, short story long, I received Chicky as a birthday gift. No cardboard cotton with fancy gift wrap and elaborate satin bows hinting of exciting secrets inside, like in the movies. After I'd done my early morning chores and enjoyed my birthday breakfast, Mum and Dad exchanged conspiratorial grins and Dad glanced approvingly at my sister, who left the table and ran back a few minutes later with a bit of yellow fluff in a wicker basket. I was crushingly disappointed, but tried manfully not to show it. A chicken? I already looked after dozens of those. That's when the chicken made a most unchicken-like sound and I went scrambling around the table in paroxysms of delight. That's how Chicky got his name. His ancestry must be particularly tangled because other than his distinctive yellow colour, he has no recognisable lineage. His is not the face to draw even the smallest number of ships. But that's because the best part of him is not visible to the casual observer. Sometimes, the first we'd know a person or animal was sick or injured was that Chicky would attach himself to them. He'd have sensed something, or smelt, or heard what it was we've never discovered. But he knew you were sick before you knew it yourself. And he'd stay beside you till you got better. If he left his ward, you'd know for sure it was on the mend. Otherwise, he would never abandon his post. Two sick animals had to be put in the same barn. Otherwise, he'd wear himself ragged running between them. So while he was nominally my pet, he turned out to be a working nurse dog. Once, I'd got into a particularly nasty altercation with a rooster in the henhouse. And in fleeing those vicious claws and beak, I'd stumbled all over the fluttering, squawking chickens and despite being normally sure-footed, had wound up measuring my length in the muck. Picking up myself and my bruised pride, I'd finished my work, muttering darkly at the rooster as he ruffled his wings angrily at me from his perch. From the next day, Chicky, normally one to be always coming and going, started dogging my footsteps. Would not leave me for a second. I remember Dad setting me up on the kitchen table and questioning me, where did it hurt? I kept saying nothing was wrong and I wasn't fibbing. Dad started examining me limb by limb and when he reached my foot and pulled off my sturdy lace-up boot, I winced. Chicky confirmed the diagnosis with a flurry of licks. There was no swelling or anything to indicate it, but there was indeed a hairline fracture, which must have resulted from my dust-up with the rooster. How Chicky knew that is more than I can say. Dad said he'd headed off many a problem at the farm with his early warning system, and he blessed the day he'd brought him home for me.
Chiki had another idiosyncrasy. He needed vacations. Since he was always on his self-imposed duty, he needed to recharge his batteries periodically. And so, every now and then, he disappeared. Have you any idea how difficult it is to hide from a normally inquisitive boy who knows his surroundings well? Till Chiki came into my life, I'd considered myself the expert on hiding places. But Chiki outhid me in style. The first few times he disappeared, I went looking for him in panic, thinking him sick or lost or injured. The next few times I went looking in puzzlement. How could he possibly have found hiding places that I didn't know of? But he came home only when he was good and ready and not before. So I learned to accept his disappearances and stopped going out looking for him. So when he went off this time, I shrugged and carried on. That night, I didn't sleep well. Not normal for me. I usually knocked off instantly. I lay awake and my leg ached for no reason at all. Anyhow, I did my early morning chicken run before bath and breakfast and school. But when I came home in the afternoon, I was limping. And dad asked me jokingly, Where's that dog of yours? He ought to be here to diagnose you. The next night, the pain in my leg was so intense that I cried out from my bed and mum came in worried. A doctor's visit was in order, they decided. The next morning, I hobbled out to my hen run as usual. I fed the hens and collected the eggs and cleaned out the yard. But when I should have taken off my boots and gone for my bath, instead, I snuck off towards the stream at the edge of our property, calling out, Chicky, Chicky, are you there? Come home, Chicky, I'm worried about you. But no sign of him. I was taken to the doc, who found nothing wrong with my leg and hinted snidely that I was malingering to bunk school. Dad didn't give that theory much credence, which faith I appreciated. I got home and limped straight out towards the stream calling for Chicky and looking high and low for him to no effect. Yet I never thought of looking anywhere else but only straight to the stream as if drawn by a magnet. Long story short, I spent four days of searching, getting more and more agitated as I found no trace of him while everyone mocked me for my unnecessary concern. He'd turn up, he always did. And I had three more nights of crying out in pain from the agony in my nothing wrong with it leg. And on the fourth day of the search, fifth of his going missing, I was beginning to worry that I should be looking elsewhere too. I couldn't explain the immense unease I felt to anyone. I was in a spiral of fearful helplessness, not to mention physical agony, looking wildly up and down the stream. When suddenly, I spied a dirty yellow patch where I had looked a hundred times before and seen nothing. I ran to him, for yes, it was Chicky, Filthy and bedraggled and thin and with a badly broken leg, unable even to bark or cry. Somehow he dragged himself out of his hiding place into the open, giving up on me ever discovering him myself. My heart broke to see my darling nurse dog in such a state and I hadn't been able to reach him in all these days 
even though he'd been beaming out a cry for help in a way I simply couldn't explain or even understand. He could barely open his eyes and I yearned so for his raspy pink tongue to reach out wetly for me, but he was too weak for any of that. I stroked him and petted him, pouring out my love and relief at finding him and wondering how to get him home. He was barely alive. I took off my shirt and bundled him into it as tenderly as I could, trying my hardest not to jolt his injured leg, and he accepted it all without even a moan. His trust in me made me cry hot tears of anguish. I carried him back home, easily managing his shriveled weight, for by now I was a sturdy ten-year-old. The pain in my own leg was miraculously gone. Dad drove us hurriedly to the vet, and Chick's leg was put in plaster, and for the six weeks it would take for him to heal and get back his health and strength and his glossy yellow coat, I was his devoted and ever-present nurse. My Chicky's an old man now, but still on nurse duty. Thankfully, he's never needed my nursing skills again. I'm happy he stayed strong and healthy. Does he head off danger from himself too? And was the breaker situation beyond his control? So many mysteries remain unsolved. Chicky himself gives no answers, only thumps his tail joyfully when I question him. Lightning Hill I'm a bachelor with a big house and I live up in the hills. So I'm very popular with friends and relatives, especially in the summer. Mm. In the winter, I've noticed my popularity tends to wane. Lest you think I'm the kindest-hearted person, I should tell you, I have my own system of payment. Stories. I tell stories and tall tales and you never know which is which. Still, you have to listen or the generosity pipeline runs dry. When I've had enough of my visitors, I retire upstairs to my personal quarters where no guest may venture. But I range downstairs at my will. And when I'm in the mood for a story, you need to be in one too. A distant nephew or more correctly, nephew of a nephew, had booked a five-day slot in the summer calendar. He brought with him a sweet young wife. Their holiday interlude was half done when a thunderstorm threatened. Lightning zigzagged over the hills and thunder rolled over us in a wide arc, gaining and then losing volume as it roared away into the distance. The outdoors were dense and dark, and there was a dangerous sizzle in the air. Far away to the right, a fierce orange flame exploded on a hillside. The thunder that followed was an almighty crack, as if the world was splitting in two. The girl leapt out of her chair to peer out the window. 
The whole hill was on fire, or enough of it to make no difference. Lightning Hill, I nodded, knowingly. She shivered slightly, eyes still fixed on the blaze. Does lightning always strike it? Indeed it does, I assured her. We are safe on these hills, but if you build so little as a haystack or so much as a mansion on that hill, it won't survive. You can cover it in a forest of lightning conductors, but come the first electric storm of the season, it will be in flames. Many have believed that there must be a solution and they are clever enough to find it. And maybe there is. But in the decades I've been here, it hasn't been found. That hill does not intend to be conquered. It will tolerate sheep and tea. But when humans try to tame it, it fights back and shows who's boss. Oh, go on, Grandpa. They both called me that, though I wasn't Grandpa to either of them. Go on, Grandpa. You don't really believe that. Surely you don't. They harangued me. Aha. Uh-huh. So you're skeptics. You don't believe that hills and clouds and rivers have souls that must be propitiated. That's all very well for you city kids. But up here in the mountains, things are more elemental. And there's a great deal that science can't explain. Like what? countered the nephew. Come on, lay it on us and we'll see what we can't explain. I don't take challenges like that lightly. You'll go there tomorrow when the sun is setting and experience it for yourself. But I'll tell you the story today so that you can do your darndest to resist. Then we'll know about your science and its answers. There's a big black shell of a house on that hill. It was home to a wealthy family. That hill and a few others belonged to them. They'd always lived on another hill and used this one only for growing tea or grazing. So though the lightning hits were regular and dependable, they did no major harm. There are only a few burnt-out ruins on the hill, small shelters of wood or stone, abandoned when lightning took its toll. The brothers had a falling out and the younger one decided to build a house on Lightning Hill and live there with his wife and three daughters. He well knew the awesome reputation of that hill. But he was a progressive man, a man of science, and was confident he would defeat it. A grand home was built with multiple levels of lightning security. Until the first storm, there was much tension. But the house handled it without a scorch, and science and technology had saved the day. The nephew and his wife looked triumphant. But the story wasn't ended yet. It was a traditional family and younger brother was authoritarian in all matters, especially regarding his daughters. The two elder girls were meek and dutiful and obeyed Papaji's wishes, and life was rosy. 
but the youngest daughter bijli had always been a rebel and strained at the yoke her limbs were smooth and supple like a young deer her voice a bubbling stream full of liquid energy everyone loved her for she had a ready smile and a kind heart when she informed her father that she was in love with a boy from the village and wanted to marry him the whole countryside trembled for her for sound travels well in the upper reaches and the roars that emanated from papaji reverberated across the hills but bijli was a chip of the old block if he did approve of her choice she declared he would watch her die an old maid for she'd certainly not marry any other papaji imprisoned her in the house forthwith and commanded his wife and other daughters to make her see sense his sense that was young bijli had only one weapon the most extreme passive weapon in the world and she deployed it immediately she stopped eating her mother and sisters beseeched her papaji was headstrong he would never give in she was young she would soon forget this fellow whoever he was such stubbornness was unwarranted after all papaji wanted what was best for her didn't he but bijli was equally headstrong she clamped her mouth shut no words out no food in in 4 days she was terribly weak in 5 she could no longer rise from her bed in a week she couldn't even sit up or open her eyes and was but a rack of her former self her mother and sisters now desperately pleaded with papaji they dragged him to her room and he was so horrified by her appearance that he capitulated immediately the relationship was doomed from the start he was undereducated and poor circumstances which can change and ideally shouldn't matter but he was also dull and boring and had nothing to commend himself except his half crazed devotion to bijli so lackluster was he that history hasn't even recorded his name she was charming and intelligent and the most well-known personality in the hills how could their love have endured such inequality but papaji's violent opposition had so got her back up that though he was right there was now no respectful retreat for bijli she got her strength back and returned to normal life One day during a sudden summer squall it was noticed Bijli hadn't yet returned worrisome but not overmuch it had happened before to all of them she take shelter wherever she was and call when the electricity and telephone lines were restored it's never good to be out during an electric storm for in the expanse of the mountains the lightning and thunder rage wicked and willful The nephew and wife were now silent. The wild flashes and rolls outside the windows gave credence to my remarks. 
and from the warmth and safety of their own relationship, they were sucked into worry about this ill-fated romance. The power came back and the telephone sprung to life, but there was no reassuring call from Bijli or any neighbor to say she was safe, don't worry. And Papaji worried and couldn't be convinced to exercise patience. He called together his staff and went looking for her. Eminently impractical, since no one knew where to look in the first place. And surely she was safe and sheltering somewhere. He sent word through the community that Bijli was missing and dozens turned up to help. It was Papaji who found them. Curled together in the futile shelter of one of those burnt-out dwellings, in the eternal embrace of death. They wouldn't even have known what hit them, and death would have been instantaneous and merciful, for it united them forever, whereas life might well have separated them. It destroyed the family. This charming child had been the light of all their lives, They left their home in the hills and went away and never came back. The house stood tall and proud, but no one wanted anything to do with it, for there was a veil of doom over it. In the next stormy season, lightning struck repeatedly and mercilessly, igniting many fires. At the end of that period, the house was a blackened shell with blasted walls. And that's how it remains to this day. During the day, the shepherds and tea workers reclaim the hill. But as the sun sets, the slopes are deserted. It is reported that Bijli and her young man range freely over the hill, chasing each other and rejoicing in the eternal freshness of their romance. They don't like old men, so I've never visited after sunset but they bless young lovers. Their laughter and their running footsteps are heard now here, now there, joyfully tripping over the hill. The air is soft and sweet with the perfume of their undying devotion. Sometimes they show themselves. She always has a circlet of wild flowers in her hair. They remain eternally young, their love never waning, their pleasure in each other undiminished by time. The two young ones were huddled together. They didn't want to believe, but had got pulled into the story. I'd seen the horror in their eyes when I spoke of the couple being discovered together. The hope when I spoke of their continued presence on the hill. I pulled my old bones out of my favourite chair. I suggest you take yourselves off there tomorrow, after sunset, and see for yourselves. I'm eager for verification of this old story, and you too, doubters, will be my best chance. For I'm sure they will reveal themselves to you. We can discuss it over dinner. Now, it's been a long day, and unlike you young ones, I need my rest. So you'll excuse me. Good night. And sweet dreams, I quote, trundling myself off upstairs, knowing full well their dreams would be anything but sweet.
Dinner tomorrow night will be interesting. Yeah.